On today's episode is Brian Davis. He's a data science manager over at Nextdoor. We're going to discuss his journey, the challenges he's tackling over at Nextdoor, and also remote work, the pros and cons, and is it changing the future of Silicon Valley? Enjoy the show. Hey, Brian, uh, thanks for joining. Feel free to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Arash. Glad to be here. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, data science manager at Nextdoor. I lead uh, data science efforts on the revenue side of things over at Nextdoor. Coming to Nextdoor only a few months in here. Uh, previously was at Facebook for about a year. And prior to that, I worked at Indeed, the job search engine, for four years. So I've had a bit of a journey, but that's my data science journey. Yeah, I was curious. I know uh, getting onboarded remotely through COVID or just you know partially re- remote how has that experience been for you personally? I would say that for me, it's been okay. Definitely had some points at the beginning where I was worried about being able to establish rapport with the team, being able to establish rapport with my manager, feeling like there's a lot of pre-existing relationships that I don't necessarily have insight into. And there's definitely been some challenges, but I would say that overall, the company's handled it really well. I think that maybe it's something about the culture of the company. Maybe it's something about the changing culture of the industry in general, but I think it's managed to result in some pretty good relationships. Although I'm sure that those relationships would have been built a lot faster had we been in person. Definitely. I know we'll uh, touch a little bit on that remote part of uh, the new normal, as people are coining it uh, a little bit later. Your journey is, is an interesting one. So I wanted you to share that journey. And I know a lot of people that are either looking to get into the data science realm or you know, study different type of you know, degrees in college, have different paths. So I was curious about your particular journey, kind of how you got here. Sure, yeah. First, I'll just say that uh, I remember talking with uh, some other members of the data science team recently at Nextdoor. Different people were sort of tracing their journey and how they winded up in careers that they ended up in. And people had come from a large variety of backgrounds, including psycholinguistics, sort of sociology, And there was only one member who had sort of identified that career path as an undergrad. And they were the youngest member of the team. And even they did not have the option of like choosing data science as a major at their school. They had to invent their own major. So you guys did a 23andMe on the team. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah, the uh, educational 23andMe. And I'll say in my previous experience, also backgrounds as diverse as physics and astronomy and Again, linguistics was another one that I've seen a few times. So people definitely come at it from different directions. There's a lot of non-traditional ways to get there. I think outside of when you look at, you know, software engineers, typically it's like, you know, hey, studied CS uh, and now, you know, I'm an engineer. But I think on the data science side, there's just a different aptitude and uh, a lot of different paths. So I know from you, you know, you started, uh, you know, linguistics, you lived abroad did a lot of work as a translator, things like that. So just kind of give us that overview of where you started and then how kind of your path got to where you are. My uh, original undergrad major was in history and Asian studies. Um, I was a student primarily of Chinese and I moved to China after graduating and lived there for four years with the ambition of becoming uh, proficient in the language and really throwing myself all into the sort of area studies trajectory, which as a career path leads to things like people becoming diplomats or people working for large multinational corporations in their sort of foreign offices. Some people become writers and journalists. Um, there's all sorts of interesting career paths that I've seen people take after living abroad and sort of throwing themselves into the language. 
But for me, I, I kind of realized part way through it that I really loved science and I missed science. I missed working my brain in that way. I will say that like, I recognized that there was something about, oh, this is going to sound a little weird, but maybe a degree of elitism within the fields that are most accessible to liberal arts majors. It's a place where recruiting for journalistic jobs is typically happening from only the most preeminent universities. It's uh, where diplomatic corps is obviously something where, you know, you take a test to get in. So there is some degree of objectivity there, but it's very much a business of relationships. It's a business of who you know and how you get there. And I've always sort of uh, fancied myself to be a little bit of a rebel, a little bit of a kind of like coming up uh, the dark horse, as it were. And I also like craved the intellectual stimulation that came from kind of getting back into the sciences. And so I, I began my journey back to data science after working in the consulting industry for two years in China, my last two years in China, in which I was sort of focused on the energy industry. My job was great, but I sort of knew that I wanted to kind of lay the bedrock for a transition, uh, especially if I was considering the long-term career trajectory of the idea of returning to the United States. A lot of people that live abroad and then come back to the United States have a really big trouble with that transition because there's not a natural landing pad, as it were, to kind of pursue a career. Uh, it turns out that uh, four to five or 10 years in China, like being kind of a uh, an entrepreneur slash hustler is not exactly relevant work experience for a lot of companies <laughs> in the United States. There's no job description for that type of person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you make it big, there are people who do it. I know somebody who represented uh, American athletes that became prominent in China. And so he turned himself into the default agent for transitioning NBA players or things like that who are going to play in China leagues. So, you know, people do it make possible. it. Yeah, it is possible, yeah. It is possible. Like it. I guess I'm also curious how that's helped you as a data scientist and then also moving up to be a manager. I know everybody talks about the business side of the house and then how to better communicate. So I was curious how you feel like your backgrounds, uh, you've been able to leverage that in your success. Yeah, well, I would say that like, I believe that management as a profession or management as a discipline really is a discipline of communication, first and foremost. and. I think that's true across all industries, that management really is about understanding and working with people. And so perhaps coming from a background that where communication was, I think, my first training, like really caring about language, really caring about writing and clarity, and spending a lot of time training myself to operate through cultural ambiguities or through things like that. And I think I'm also just sort of like predispositioned as an extrovert. I like people. I like coordinating with people. I like planning things. I think that those have been assets for me in the transition to being a lead or a coach, as we often say. But I think also many different kinds of personalities can shine. But for me, I've kind of viewed myself as a communicator who got technical rather than a technical person who became a good communicator. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, in the end, I think to be the most successful, you need both. So uh, however you get that combination, uh, it definitely works. I know a lot of questions sometimes I get from, you know, junior data scientists is, you know, should I go to grad school? Is that going to help me? So I wanted to get your opinion on how you think that helps people and then kind of where you think there's some gaps that it, it maybe doesn't do the full scope of what it needs to do. Yeah, that's a good question. This is something I run into as well when people are asking, like I've talked to a number of friends who are interested in potential career transitions and 
you know, the lay of the land as far as careers with data go is pretty broad. There's a lot of things that people can do. Everything from sort of, you know, we would call them sort of business intelligence analyst. My starting job title was a quantitative analyst. There's product science roles. There's UX scientists or user experience designers or researchers. There's data scientists. There's machine learning engineers. There's research scientists. All these different titles, a lot of them. And there's a degree of potentially academic sophistication affiliated with different parts of these titles. So I sort of asked people, well, you know, I think that the academic program or an academic background, especially if you can come from a discipline which gives you rigorous training in statistics or rigorous training in computer science or both, definitely puts one sort of above and puts one as like a serious candidate for jobs immediately coming out of school at places that are going to, you know, basically expect a detailed knowledge of those things and expect you to, you know, have all the sort of ins and outs of being able to talk about, I guess, maybe the more uh, fundamental theoretical sides of data science. What I think that a lot of programs lack, and I think that this would include academic programs in statistics or computer science, is stuff that's just basic to industry, like the actual design of software, the actual sort of fundamental tools and how systems are built. And it makes sense that those are missing from school because those really are things that have come to fruition and come to maturity in industry rather than in research. So I think obviously there's benefits to getting you know extra degrees and going to further education. How does somebody get that real life experience when they're in school? I know there's Kaggle competitions, things like that. There's mixed reviews on those. I, I think some people think they're really valuable and others are like, well, it's still not quote unquote a real problem you're solving. So what would you do in that situation if you are in grad school and you're like, hey, I'm going to get the technical acumen that's necessary, but then there's this other component of real life work experience that would be good to have for you know getting a, a solid job. What would you suggest people do in that situation? Yeah, that's a really good question too. I think that there's a lot of cases to be creative there. My first ever applied project was for the North Carolina Prisoner Defense Fund, I believe. I can't remember their exact name. You didn't dream about that when you were a little kid, right? No, not at all. And like, <laughs> what they wanted me to do was take a big data dump from the state's prison database and to look at who had been paroled and who hadn't been paroled and see if they could basically develop a model that would potentially indicate unfairness in the parole decisions of the prisoners. That was like a crazy project to find. And the truth is that there, in almost all industries other than tech, there's a tremendous amount of data and very little resources to analyze it. So if you just reach out to your favorite NGO, even your favorite local business, they might have a database that would be worth analyzing. And you can kind of uh, dig into the weeds there. This particular program came because the organization had contacted a professor in my department when I was in grad school, and no one else took the project. And it was just sort of like sitting around. It was paid, so it wasn't free, which was something. But I was able to you know, basically justify learning how to rebuild a database from data dumps and how to do some analysis that actually you know, had an impact on the world. So I think that if you're creative, you can really look for things like even just sending emails and being like, hey, like I'm looking for a project, you know, I'm interested in your area. And this is where I think being a broad thinker really helps. And maybe somebody who is just coming purely from a mathematical and theoretical background, they could benefit from thinking a little bit more broadly about the issues they care about, the kind of organizations they want to be affiliated with, because there's lots of problems out there just waiting for somebody to solve them. 
I think that's awesome advice. And I think, you know, if you're a little bit more on the shy side, professors, people at your school that you're at, ask them. They might know some different business people in the community that could utilize your experience. And I think those are great things to then be able to put on your resume and talk about this is the kind of work I did, you know, in college. So it shows a lot of initiative too. So I think definitely poking around, I'm sure people will love to get insight on the data they have when nobody else is touching it. And even within the sort of academic context, go talk to the history department. They probably have old like economics data or something like that from a period that they're studying and they don't have anyone to analyze it. Or political scientists that are looking for somebody to like test their theory against the history of sort of elections data from a study. There's all sorts of ways that you can kind of align with your own intellectual interests. And I think that if if you get creative, then there are opportunities out there. Yeah, no, without a doubt, I think those are awesome suggestions. Something else that I know is a huge topic right now, and I wanted to touch base with you real quick on it, is remote. And uh, working from home, is that here to stay forever? Obviously, it sounds like with some monster companies um, letting people work from home forever, there's definitely been a shift. I read something, I think it was last week, that Pinterest canceled their lease and paid a penalty of $90 million. So it seems like it's a growing trend. So I wanted your opinion on how you see you know, the pros and cons of uh, remote work. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big question. I think there's lots of pros, lots of cons. Obviously, the perspective of being able to not worry about your commute, I think, is the biggest pro. Just because the hustle and bustle of getting ready in the morning, getting out the door and all that stuff, I think for me, is a time saver. It's also a stress saver. But at the same time, there's been some evidence that like having that morning commute, that morning ritual is actually, that's some of the best downtime that people get during a day. That's the time when people listen to audiobooks. That's the time when people sometimes call their parents and stuff like that. So not having that structured time has costs as well. I do like not having to think that I wear this shirt yesterday. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's a big benefit. You know, like I keep joking with my team about, you know, we'll finally all put on pants when we meet each other (laughs) in the office someday. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's true because I was listening to a podcast of a CISO and he was saying that in the car, in traffic, he actually disconnects and it's his time to think differently, you know, and and try to just kind of let his mind wander, whatever the case is. And I actually watched a masterclass with Sarah Blakely, which is amazing. This is a plug because I think she's amazing, fantastic. And she said that's part of her best time that she thinks is in the car. So to your point, you're taking something away. And I think it's just recognizing what is getting taken away, making sure that you still have that in your life, obviously now in a different way. So maybe you got to take a walk, you know, take a break or whatever the case is. So you still get all those components that you need to be optimal. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and obviously that's not the only thing that's changing. The lack of human to human contact in an office. I think the really big pressure test of this will be when some companies are co-located again, are back in the office and some are not. And we'll really get a test of whether or not being co-located helps with collaboration, helps with retainment of employees for a longer time, helps retain a a nice culture, all those sorts of things. Because I think a lot of the reason that people stay at jobs is not related directly to like the list of benefits and the salary. It's about people. It's about the feeling like you have people you care about and people that hold you accountable, people that are helping you grow. 
and having people that you respect and you know like and love that you work with. And if those relationships are not being built as strongly, then we might see some really different trends in the industry in terms of uh, how long people stick at companies and that sort of thing. And so, it, you know, it could be that in the long term, like we develop or become fluent enough in technologies to close that gap. But there's also, I think, a big potential that this begins to really show effects. Like, so a friend of mine made a point. He's like, if you have pre-existing relationships and you have to go remote with those relationships, then you still have all of that pre-existing time that is going to basically, you know, you can ride that out. But as organizations begin to change and evolve as people leave and new people come, that sense of sort of personal connection and that sense of trust that comes from working with each other for a long time, and which is much more easily established when you're working in person, that'll begin to evaporate. And so the long-term impact of working remote is unknown. Yeah. And I think people have been tinkering with this for a while. I know Marissa Miller, when she was at Yahoo, had a ban for a while, said everybody back in the office. So, you know, I think it's one of those where there's obviously some significant pros and some significant cons. And, and maybe it's a hybrid, right? Maybe it's, we need a space, but we don't have to have it be as big. And, and maybe we have people come in, you know, a couple times a week or, you know, maybe twice a month or whatever the case is. So I, I think there's some balance there. And I think it depends on your culture as an organization. Absolutely. Yeah. In the end, you know, the work needs to get done. And I think now there's a lot of ways to feel more connected, but nothing can ever substitute in-person interactions and just, you know, meeting people and getting to know them on that level. So as much as I think millennials like to hide behind Zoom and Facebook and Snapchat and and Instagram and stuff like that, and TikTok, I think uh, there's still that component of being human. Yeah, I agree. I am very grateful for this change in culture, at least to kind of like open up this avenue of exploration. I think that it's really, it's a wonderful thing for a lot of companies and a lot of employees to be able to have this option. And industries that probably never thought that they would even experiment with this, like the traditional sort of bastions of conservative industry, like law or finance, and they're suddenly going remote. And I bet for a lot of people there, that's like the most flexible they've ever had any of their work be. Technology obviously has a much more lively tradition of sort of better benefits and more flexibility. But I think even in technology, it's been a big change in terms of recognizing that we can still be pretty effective even while remote. But I agree with you that some sort of balance probably is like the long-term trajectory coming together at certain times and for certain things and getting that face-to-face interaction. Yeah, without a doubt. I think uh, in life, balance is always uh, at least my goal and it's always the toughest thing to strive for. So with that being said, I know you got to get back to it. So uh, it's been a pleasure, Brian. Uh, Really appreciate you being on the show. If somebody wants to reach out or connect, I'm guessing LinkedIn, that'd be the best way to, to ping you. Yeah. LinkedIn, Brian G. Davis at Nextdoor. And um, yeah, feel free to check out. I've got my own podcast, which is uh, completely unrelated to my professional pursuits, but that's called The Heart of the Matter with Brian and Jay. Sometimes it's Brian, sometimes it's Jay, sometimes it's both of us. We do uh, interviews uh, with interesting folks there as well. But yeah, thank you so much, Ross. This has been a pleasure. Awesome, man. Have a good day and uh, enjoy the next episode. And hopefully you guys can uh, leave some feedback on this one. Thanks. 